As restrictions slightly eased around the world, the plans to bring tennis back are slowly coming into fruition and the USTA during the week has announced plans that the US Open is still full steam ahead. So we're going to go through all of those proposed changes into the tournament and how it's going to be hosted by the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. We're going to talk about the Rome, or the Italian Open. That's going to be held in September, but it's going to overlap with another pretty significant tournament and much, much more. Some big guests, Rob Koenig and Jonathan Pinfield to come and top three Grand Slam underdog stories as well as Ben Wire of the Week. Val Febo here with you on Breakpoint Podcast and joining me as always is the man, the myth, the legend, Joel Ferrucci. How are you going? Good Val. I don't know about the myth. That's interesting. <laughs> First time I've been called the myth. Oh, I'll take it though. It's, right. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's one that uh, makes you feel all right. So I'll yeah, take it. Exactly. Now, anytime someone calls you man, the myth, the legend, that's, that's, that's always a good thing. Yeah. So um, how are you anyways? Yeah, I'm going okay, mate. Um, just uh, 2020. I'll tell you what, it just gets uh, just gets more and more interesting as a as a side note from uh, from tennis. But um, yeah. just oh, geez, just a unbelievable time that we're living in, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's crazy. Well, I think we were talking last night, and um, what was it in uh, in Congo? And uh, an outbreak of Ebola has come back. It's making a comeback. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, at this point, I'm um, I'm really just wondering um, what what else is to come on the 2020 bingo board because um, I mean, you think about it. What 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 haven't we had yet? We've had bushfires. We've had Ebola again. We've had the US at war with. Don't forget people. January, Joel. Bushfires. Yeah, with the media. Yeah, Australia's been on fire. Yeah. Um, oh, it's just. <laughs> I'm speechless, really. Yeah, it's and just, the, it's just and even even celebrity deaths as well. Like we had Jerry Stiller passed away, Fred Willard, yeah. and now uh, Michael Angelis, the guy who narrated Thomas the Tank Engine for oh, twenty or twenty years, passed away during the week. And I was obsessed with Thomas the Tank Engine as a kid, so that was um that was uh quite sad. So no, rest in peace, Michael Angelis. But yeah, it's. Oh, and it, it's kind of like, and I was thinking last night, Ebola, because it's kind of like the old, it's it's not it's not the Vogue virus right now. It's it's kind of the, like that's that's Roger Federer, and then this new it's making it's making its comeback, like Roger Federer, and this new virus is kind of like Novak Djokovic trying to usurp the mantle as the most deadly virus, and that that's how I've been thinking of it. That's what twenty twenty's done to my mind, but. Um, yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's a shocking year what, what we've had so far and yeah, fingers crossed that things can change pretty drastically, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon, but we do have a massive show today. Rob Koenig, the voice of tennis globally, um, what, what wonderful dulcet tones he's got. Um, and we go into some of his one-liners and, um, there's one very in particular one that, that I think you and I both enjoyed (laughs) during our chat. Um, we spoke to him uh, last night, and uh, we'll play the chat for you today. But yeah, it's um, he was a, a wonderful interview. And Jonathan Pinfield. Now you might not know a lot about him, but um, he's the voice of Yorkshire behind that press conference with Alexander Zverev at the French <laughs> Open a couple of years ago, where Zverev fell in love with the accent, and a little bit of a bromance has come around. So we're going to um, we're going to talk to him a little bit about that. But before we do any of it. The USTA, planning for the US Open to go full steam ahead, held in its usual spot on the calendar. But there's a lot of changes, Joel, and that includes uh, ramped up COVID-19 testing, chartered flights for all the players, uh, centralised housing, so very close to the Billie Jean King Tennis Centre in uh, in Flushing Meadows around the Queen's Borough, uh, fewer officials and ball people, and one person entourage per player. And that one stands out probably as the biggest one for me. Because yeah. those top guys or top ladies travel with entourages, some in excess of 10 people. We know Federer travels with his wife, his two coaches, his four kids, the nanny, um, the physio. Um, that's seven already, plus himself, that's eight. Um, that That's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's very interesting. And I'm not sure how those bigger players are going to, are actually going to actually cope with them. Um, with the with the lesser entourage, but I guess if the tournament goes ahead, they're going to have to find a way, aren't they? Yeah, they will. Um, you know, it'll be a, a big change for them, and um, you know, of course, we know we've been speaking a lot about how um, 
the vast majority of players on, on tour don't have entourages like that because they can't afford it. Um, so I, I guess the, the one positive of that change, if, if that is implemented, if the US Open goes ahead, is, um, you know, does that, uh, does that um, plateau the playing field a bit? Does it create a more even playing field? Because we've really been talking a lot about when it comes to tournaments and Grand Slams, if they go ahead, um, the integrity of, of the tournaments based on preparation, things like that. Um, you know, we're not going to go into it too much because we've, we've been speaking a lot about, um, uh, you know, the pros and cons of staging these yeah. tournaments. We sound like a broken record, yeah. we really do. But, um, you know, what I will say, and I'm sure you agree, Val, is that, you know, I, I still think it's, it's impractical at the moment um, to hold a Grand Slam, particularly in the US, where not only are we seeing um, COVID-19 cases um, continue to climb, uh, of course, now we're seeing this other issue that's emerged where um, essentially, really, as of today, the uh, the government, the president has uh, essentially declared war on his own people. So, um, you know, there's still obviously three months to go between um, now and and um, the proposed start of the US Open. But, um, you know, at the moment, not only are we dealing with COVID-19 still, and that doesn't really seem to be dissipating, but we have to ask ourselves is America actually going to be safe to stage a tournament like the US Open? At the moment, you'd have to say no. Yeah, exactly right. I'm not sure what the riot status is in New York at the moment, but it seems to be pretty bad everywhere um, in the USA. So it doesn't look very good at the moment for America, but you never know. And look, I think the one thing that we've been saying, and before we do move on, I will say this, that we have been going on about how that's 256 singles players could be just thrown into one city plus a one person entourage if they bring one person with them that immediately jumps up to 512 so that's 512 people going into an already heavily infected city with COVID-19 how I, I don't see how it is a good idea but look the USTA is going by medical advice so let's let's just go with them. Wait for more updates. As I, my opinion's not changing, it's impractical. I don't think it should be done, but we'll see what happens. And as yeah, I said last and, week and the week before and, that, yeah. And and just just uh, another another point on um, on the issue of the protest spell. I think we've seen and we have to applaud them. Um, in particular, yeah. Naomi Osaka and Coco Goff have been using their platforms to to really, um, I, I guess, spread the message. Um, of the peaceful protests, um, of course, that's been prompted by the death of, um, of of George Floyd. So it's been great to see them use their their platforms uh, for, for good. But um, I guess that made me think, um, obviously, Naomi and Coco were are women of, of colour. Um, I, I do I do wonder if, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of tennis, there's a lot of tennis players of colour, male, male and female. And I do wonder if not only uh, if, if they... Um, you know, of course, it's it's an issue that that affects them, but also um, also um, you know white players. Um, if if the tour, um, if players on, on the tour opt to show solidarity, which um, you know is is probably what what we want to see because it is such a uniting issue. I think everyone's really um, been been affected by this. It's it's a really um, you know it's, it seems like a real turning point in history for not only for the for the US but also for the world. So I do wonder if. Um, if some players feel as though if they were, if this is still going on in September um, or August, if they were to play at the US Open, would they feel as though they're somehow being complicit? I guess maybe I'm potentially looking into it too much, but it's it's something that I think some players will, will certainly think about, um, whether they're of colour or, or if they're white. So, um, you know, I think that's something to think about as well, whether players potentially opt to pull out because of that. Who knows? Oh, I don't think they'll pull out because I think as it is a grand slam and i think as it is like i get where you're coming from but i just don't think i don't reckon they'll pull out um if 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 it was safe to go there i think that they'll they'll still play um that's um that's my opinion on it like i I just think that you know it is a grand slam they will be protected i know it's something that you know it's 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 an issue that holds close to a lot of people's hearts and us us included we you know racism is absolutely abhorrent but um I, i think I think the players will still go do their job and, you know, this is still a pretty heavy pay packet for them. So it's it's a wait and see moment, as we have said for, what, what's this, our ninth show since we've come back, 10th or 11th or something like that. But 
God, it just, like, it's a wait and see, wait and see. I'm sick of the wait and see. I just want to know something. So, if, yeah. like, this was a nice little nugget, but that's pretty much all we've had. But also, the Italian Tennis Federation president, Angelo Binaghi, he's confident the, the Italian Open can be held in September, but um, he's confident that that can coincide with the first week of Roland Garros. <laughs> Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, when I was reading the uh, when I was reading the news report, I mean, that's obviously that's what that's what stood out straight away. Um, you know, fair play, fair play to the Italian tennis authorities for wanting to push ahead with their their marquee tournament. Um, you know, we can't forget that it is a one thousand event, and it's uh, you know a major a major showpiece on on the clay court calendar. Um, but you know, obviously, if you have to juxtapose the two, Val, and we keep uh, this is another thing we've spoken about. What, what's to say that that a, a Grand Slam um, is is more important than um, you know than, than a one thousand event. Mm. Yes, we think that Grand Slams are more important because they're Grand Slams. There's more points available. There's more money available. Um, but those events, um, you know, the the uh, Italian Open for, for Italy is a major event. It brings in a lot of money. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're officials, um, umpires, ball kids get get employment. Um, broadcasters, you know, they make they make their money off off these events. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, it's going to leave players with a decision if the two tournaments overlap. And, and ultimately, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's you know, pretty certain to say that um, the majority of players, if they have the choice between a Grand Slam and a 1,000 event, um, you know, male and female, a WTA Premier event, they're going to opt with the Grand Slam. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's pretty obvious. So, oh, 100%. Um, yeah, so I mean, it, it does make you wonder, really, um, you know, what what is what really is the point of, of staging that that tournament aside from potentially um, satisfying broadcasters, sponsors, and your your contractual obligations. I mean, that's really the only thing I can I can think of. Yeah, uh, I, look, I don't think there there were talks at the French Open maybe push back another another week, but um, I yeah, I, this is just it's just dumb. <laughs> It's really this whole situation yeah, yeah. is just dumb. Just yeah. <laughs> there's no if you you the amount of players that will not show up in Rome and go to Paris instead. Nadal's already confirmed his intent to go to Paris if the tournament goes ahead. So they've already lost the favorite for the tournament. So what's the point? Team is going to go to Roland Garros. Djokovic is going to go to Roland Garros. Federer will go to Roland Garros. So I reckon yeah. that if the French Open does go ahead with this revised schedule date, then Rome needs to revisit what they're doing and maybe even push it to after the French Open, but I reckon they'll try and get some hard-court events in there as well. Should we get to Rob Koenig, Joel? Yeah, let's do it. So, Joel, our first guest on today's show is one of tennis' greatest commentators uh, globally. If you know tennis, you know this man's voice. He's synonymous with the ATP and the Grand Slams. And, well, to quote the great man, we're as excited as a mongoose on amphetamines to have him back on the show. His name is Rob Koenig, and Rob, thanks so much for joining us again on Breakpoint Podcast. Yeah, no, no problem, VF. Uh, it's always fun to connect with uh, our tennis colleagues around the world. Uh, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. I'm sure you're like me. Just We can't wait to get back to the live action. No, 100%, and um, that's what I was going to ask you. How, um, how have you been going with, with no tennis, and um, have you been re-watching a lot of old historical videos or anything back from decades previous? Yeah, I tell you what, um, our local channel here is unbelievable. It's called Super Sport, and yeah. they have about 12 channels, and in the 200s is the sports channels, and every number has a specific sport that's allocated to it, and 206 is tennis, and I've been watching literally every major since uh, the mid-'80s. Uh, all over again, all the semis and finals of the Grand Slams. And it's been a lot of fun matches that I'd forgotten about, tipping points and matches that we forgot about. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. And also seeing how tennis has evolved, hey, Val, from mm. you know even the late 80s to, to what we watch now. I saw a little bit, of, I think it was Villander Noah in the 83 French Open final. And, and no disrespect to Matt, he's a good friend of mine. Man, tennis was played in slow motion, you know, back in the early 80s versus what we're seeing now. Um, you know, call it evolution and sport or whatever you want, but uh, it's incredible how far the sport has come, especially athletically and the power game. Yeah, you're 100% right, and it has changed in waves. And the, the, you mentioned the tipping points in matches. I was watching um, the 2009 Wimbledon final between Federer and Roddick a uh, couple of months ago, and 
you, you forget that Roddick actually had set points to go up two sets to love in that match and how Federer clawed his yep. way back to win that. So it was, it's just unbelievable the things that you forget about. But um, what what's the the, mat, the main match or your favourite match that you go back and, and look back on and say, or one that you've called and say, geez, I, I, it was an absolute pleasure to be a part of that? That's an easy one. Uh, it's actually one of it's your your hometown slam, 2017 Australian Open. I was in the booth with Josh Eagle and Mark Petchy, and you know when Roger went down three one in the fifth, we kind of put off the mics and we turned to each other, and I just shook my head at Josh and I said, you know, uh, Nadal's got him again when it matters in a big match. He's up a break now here in the fifth, and just looked like Roger might have been running out of gas, and Rafa was going to win another one, um, and of course Federer goes on to win without losing another game. And the manner in which he, he won was just, you know, breathtaking, the shot making. And to be part of that with some, some good friends in the booth alongside you, that's what I remember most. And maybe because it's the most current of what I've done, you know, I've done some pretty cool Masters 1000 finals. But if you ask me one that springs to mind, that's an actually a radio for, for when Andy Murray won his first Wimbledon. That was pretty cool. Only because I've been uh, watching Andy since he was about 15. I played against him um, at the tour event in Nottingham. I don't know if you remember that prior to Wimbledon. And he couldn't have been more than 15 or 16 years old. And I played against him in doubles. I couldn't believe how well this young kid hit the ball. And obviously, that's when Andy first came on my radar. So I wanted to watch this kid's career unfold. And then I remember calling his first Wimbledon final that he won against Novak in straight sets. Uh, and just thinking, man, this kid's come a long way. How cool is this to you know, break the drought, however long it was, 76 years or 77 years, um, and to have a you know, homegrown champ. How cool, how cool is that? And then to be able to call it. Hey, Robbie, speaking of uh, Andy Murray, I think he was uh, the man that you uh, described as a mongoose on amphetamines, that great call that Bell alluded to, and I'm kind of stealing his thunder here. But can you sort of talk us through that one? Like, Was it, was it one of those uh, sort of calls that was just – off the cuff? No, I've got to own up uh, that it, it was something that I'd read. She was a Joel. I can't even remember where I read it. And I thought, man, if, if there's one sport where unbelievable reflexes apply to, it's tennis. And I remember jotting it down, you know, reflexes like a mongoose on amphetamines. And I thought, hey, man, this is, it, it's such a great line. Yeah that I'm going to save it and I'm going to try and use it where it has great impact. So, you know, sometimes you make a note of something like that and you have to wait months or, or, you know, the worst thing I think you can do as a commentator is crowbar something in where it doesn't belong. Mm. Yeah. And so I've been saving it for a long time and then it just came out in, you know, in the perfect situation, two guys that net a little rat-a-tat-tat of a rally, but it has to finish with an un- unbelievable reflex and then it's apt. And of course, you know, when you've got the punchiness of, of big players doing it, then it has maximum impact. And, and, of course, those guys at Tennis TV just jumped all over it. I know the editors there as well. They're always playing games with me. Uh, with that kind of stuff. And then they get it out. They clip it up. And then um, that makes me sound a little bit better than maybe what I actually am. <laughs> no, you're 100, you're 100% one of the best in the game. And speaking of um, big impacts, they, they clipped up um, a couple of videos of Gail Monfee during the week of some of his best points, and um, you're at the forefront of every single one of them. Is And speaking of Gail, I know he's an excitement machine, but is there one player that, before you know that you're about to call one of his or her matches, that you always go, oh, I'm, I'm really excited, and I know this one's going to bring a lot of excitement um, to the viewers and fans around the world? Absolutely. And I think, you know, with a guy like Monfish, you know, something's going to happen. It might be good, it might be bad. But there's going to be some raw athleticism there that, you know, is, is going to leave, a, leave our jaws hanging on the desk sort of thing. And there's a couple of players like that. Roger shot making obviously is something that I've never seen, in, you know, as long as I've been alive. Um, with Dominic Tim, you're going to see the power. So Vapor Trail springs to mind when you're describing some of Dom's shots. And and I came up with a lot of the one-line as well, simply because in the early days of commentary, I found myself describing um, a shot the same way all the time. And, of course, sport by nature, especially our sport, is very repetitive. So when you're seeing amazing shots, you're always saying, oh, it's amazing, it's unbelievable, it's amazing, it's unbelievable. And every time I was listening to highlights 
I was using the same adjectives to describe, um, you know, spectacular shots. So that's when I thought I had to diversify, think about it a bit more, think of different ways of describing the same thing. So that's how I kind of stumbled upon it. It has become a little bit of my signature, but, you know, you want to try and make it as natural as possible. And, and that's, that's the joy I get out of watching some of these spectacular guys play. The youngsters, you ask me about people that spring to mind. Stefano Sitsipas is another guy whose shot making is off the charts, coupled with his athleticism. So you're going to see some pretty amazing stuff when he takes to the court. Um, but we've been so blessed with Rafa. You're going to see um, a guy who's tough as a woodpecker's lips, man. And I saw, <laughs> I heard another one the other day. Uh, Somebody was described as being as tough as a two-dollar steak, so I'm going to have to use that one. <laughs> well, if we ever hear you use it, we'll know. Well, you heard it here first, so um, we can't we can't wait to break that news. We'll replay the audio that week. That's brilliant. Oh, it is brilliant, and um, yeah, we are lucky to have so many uh, great shot makers in uh, in this era, and along with it as well, boys, um, a lot of great wordsmiths such as yourself, Rob. But um, I guess the unfortunate thing is, at the moment, obviously, we can't see. Any of those, uh, any of that shot making, uh, or any of that calling, um, and you know, we've spoken to some some players and also some coaches, Rob, and a couple of broadcasters and journalists as well. We spoke to um, Brett Phillips, of course, who we know uh, here in, in Australia well, and also Ben Rothenberg over in the states. But um, yourself as as a broadcaster, how is the uncertainty of of the calendar moving forward, thanks to COVID nineteen? How has that affected, um, I, I guess, you and uh, and what you're doing because you do. Uh, you are so so involved um, in the sport and in the sports media. Yeah, I tell you, it's made me realise how much I, I love my sport eh? and love what I do. Um, and just being away from it, that's the, that's been the hardest thing for me. The upside of it is I've been able to spend a lot of time with my family. You know, my my sixteen year old son, he's a, he's a budding tennis player. He wants to be a pro, so it's been really cool to spend a lot of time on the court with him because that's my pension plan boys that needs to work out for me. <laughs> so my fingers got to be on the pulse no but that's been fun you know in the mornings um with the kids doing so much schooling online now we sneak out in the morning before lessons start and then end of the day we go out and spend another couple of hours on the court so it's great to get some continuity there versus me being home for a you know a week or two and then i'm away and then his other coaches take over so I mean, it hasn't always been plain sailing. I tell you that father-son and coach-son relationship has been challenging. But it, it's it's funny in the 10 weeks now that we've been involved uh, with this lockdown, it's amazing how he's matured as well uh, and how I've seen it from both angles as a coach and as a father and try to understand his side of things. So it's been a wonderful education for me. But, you know, it's going to be fascinating. I've been very blessed that, you know, last couple of years have been good for me, so I'm not as desperate for the work as a lot of the other commentators out there. But the fact of the matter is, boys, is that I would say 99% of us in this industry are all freelancers. So no work, no pay. Mm. And there's a lot of our colleagues out there who, who are really hurting financially, and, and I do feel for them. And it's across, you know, all sports, not only tennis, but of course it's the ones that we see on a regular basis that you feel the most for. So uh, I do think about them a lot, um, and that's why I hope, and maybe selfishly, that if we do get back to sport, even if the fans aren't involved, and it's to the slight detriment of the players not having the atmosphere they want, at least some of my colleagues will have work to report on and can make a living. And maybe that's because I've you know, transferred from being a player to being in the media side of things now, but uh, you know, I want the best for those guys. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we are sort of holding our breath or waiting with bated breath um, to see if the, if the French Open goes ahead, if the US Open goes ahead. And yeah. some of the 1000s as well have heard a bit about um, the Italian Open in, in Rome um, this week. Um, how about yourself? Have you had any sort of correspondence from, um, from the federations, from um, the Grand Slams about um, what might happen, any sort of regulations about how it might work for the media? Like, for example, like there's um, there's been some examples back here in Australia of... Um, like in our sporting Aussie rules, some of the commentators are, are commentating remotely. Like, is that something that's been floated at all? Um, it hasn't. And I think it'll only be discussed once we know that the, the live action is actually going to take place, Charles. So that's what we're waiting to hear. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of it isn't done remotely. 
um, for those who, who are kind of unaware of how tennis works for just about everybody in the world who receives uh, the world feed for the ATP events. Now this is excluding uh, the masters, uh, excluding the majors, everything gets down in London. So if travel restrictions uh, were in place and the tournament in Rome was taking place, it's very easy for them to do everything out of the UK. Uh, actually, IMG, the major media management company, um, has an incredible facility in London at Stockley Park where a lot of off-tube commentary for sports gets done. So that's where a lot of it would be housed. And I think my feeling is that's where a lot of it will be done from. And I think it's twofold. It alleviates interaction on site uh, with media. It's a lot more of a controlled environment there. Um, and you've got so many broadcasters and commentators that are based out of the UK that it's very easy for them, you know, to pull on those people, people, say like myself who are in South Africa, a little tougher for me than to fly over if they really want me. And I might lose out to somebody who's a little bit more locally based in the UK. So for tennis, pretty much everything happens out of the UK if it's going to be done remotely. And is that something that, say, if you were to go to London, if they if they wanted you there, would, would that be something you'd prefer to do instead of going to the live events? Uh, it's never the, the preference. I yeah. think... Um, I often get asked that, well, you know, what's the difference between coaching um, off tube, as we like to call it, from a facility like Stockley Park versus being on site? And I reckon it's worth 30 to 40% more in the quality of your broadcasting being on site. <clears throat> you bump into so many players and coaches that I can chat to when I'm on site, get little nuggets, and especially after a lengthy break like that, you know, chat to Grigor, what he's doing, chatting to Stan, what are you doing, all the little nuggets and behind-the-scenes information that you can get from the players, the coaches, their staff, their parents, their girlfriends, everybody that you know. Um, and I think you can feed that through in your commentary, whereas if you're doing it off-site, uh, you know, you can't get that. It's I feel it's a bit more of a sterile environment, and uh, I always wonder if the viewer can actually pick that up when they're listening at home or not. Well, no, absolutely, and I think being on site, you do get that interaction that you so need. It's when when you're not at the actual venue, you're at mercy of a pen and paper and, and the internet and everything, so you don't really have that face-to-face -face interaction. And I think from from my own experience, um, producing Australian rules football games um, from the studio when callers are actually in the studio calling off the TV or when they're at the ground, it's so different, the atmosphere just changes and the energy from the commentators is is so different. So agree 100%. But just to change tactic a little bit, um, now you were a very keen doubles player, former world number 28 US Open semi-finalist, and I'm sure you read Marion Bartoli's comments during the week about um, possibly taking less money away from, or sorry, taking money away from doubles and injecting that into singles and having having less events. What what were you, What's your stance on her opinion and, and what did you make of the comments? Yeah, no, uh, I don't agree with Marion in that department. I think the prize money is such a, a fraction of the total prize money. I think doubles players get between about 11 and 12% max of the total purse. So already there, uh, the majority of the money, say 80% of the funds go to the singles players um, as we speak. I don't think that 20% that's going to doubles is going to make of a difference to the singles guys you're also creating jobs for guys who have a different skill set and this is one of my biggest arguments is that these days singles play has become um you know everybody plays the same way well and and i think guys who have the skill set of a great servant volley it's very difficult for them to play so at least they can hone their skills on the double score at least give them that avenue whereby they can they can earn a living because these days the racket and the string technology is so much in favor of a baseliner who plays singles. Um, so you've got two very important things there, equipment and strings. The one thing that you can control is the speed of the courts. These days, the courts are so much slower than what they were in the 80s and 90s. 
hard court at the US Open used to be the you know the quickest hard court that we would get throughout the course of the season. I think the only event that has a hard court that's even remotely similar to what we had back when I was playing at Shanghai with the tournament directors purposely go out to make that court a little quicker so they can encourage all-court tennis. But I think the authorities have a, you know, I think that they, they have a responsibility to make tennis tennis surfaces quicker so that guys who have a serving volley and want to develop a serving volley style at least have that opportunity. Because right now serving volleyers have, you know, almost no shot at the sport except in a doubles capacity where, um, you know, let those guys with that skill set at least have a chance to make a living. And it also helped me cast my mind back to the World Tour Finals. I want to say it might have been 2017 and 18 when virtually all the singles matches were complete blowouts. Every doubles match went the distance, match tiebreakers galore, down to the wire. And I was I was there in London calling those matches and yeah, I don't care whether it's singles or doubles. I just love the sport. But if you're asking specifically about doubles, throughout the course of that 10 or 12 days, doubles actually saved singles, especially in the group stages. Because the atmosphere was so good during the dubs matches. The quality of the play was so good. Every match was so close. Whereas singles matches were complete blowouts. Very little atmosphere. Very little for the fans to get excited about. So, you know, I almost felt like the doubles players had really earned their corn and then some in an event like that. And when you go to especially the American events, those hardcore events in the spring and the summer, man, Americans love doubles. And the amount of support around the courts that you get for the Bryans or Horatakau uh, uh, and, and those guys, it's just incredible. And people don't get to see that on TV. So... They don't understand the support that doubles gets, perhaps, if they're watching from a European country. But doubles gets a, an amazing amount of support, especially in North America. And one of my, one of my also go-to arguments is that most people play doubles at recreational level. You know, okay. I reckon <laughs> 70 to 80% of them are, are doubles players, so they understand what doubles is about and they enjoy to see it being played at a high level. Now, that's not to say they're going to choose uh, Rob Koenig and Thomas Johansson playing doubles over Federer playing singles. No. But wandering around the courts and they come across a good doubles match, there's no question they're going to stop and watch. Yeah, and well, you're 100% right. And I remember you called with Peter Donegan at the ATP Cup this year, the Australia versus Great Britain doubles match between Kyrgios and Demonor and um, Murray and oh, the um, who... The name escapes me who he was playing with, but um, yeah, it, oh, Sol, Salisbury, Salisbury. Um, yeah, it was one of the most unbelievable matches I've, I've seen in such a long time. And you're right, it's, it, it, it is a shame what Marion Bartoli said. And um, just quickly, before we do let you go, I want to ask about the court speeds. And it's always something that's fascinated me. How do they actually go about making the courts faster and slower? It is totally up to the discretion of the tournament director. Yeah. <laughs> it is, you yeah. know, so... At the end of the day, if they want a fast surface, he just tells the people who lay the courts to, to put less sand in the in the top okay, surface yeah. and make it a lot smoother. So, you know, I always tell people, imagine skimming a ball on, on glass versus skimming it on very coarse sandpaper. And that's how you get the difference between a slow surface and a, and a fast surface. It's a nice visual for people to have. You don't perhaps understand that nuance of our game, but it makes a massive difference. And I think part of the reason we've lost the seven volley skill set is because the courts have become so slow um, amongst other things, you know, you couple it with the technology and I've often said, I'm, I'm perhaps going a little off topic here and I've often said, I wish we'd tightened our regulations as far as the rackets were concerned um, and not allowed the racket head size uh, boys to get as big as it's got. Maybe, you know, keep it in check at about 85 or 90 square inches. So it's a lot, tougher for guys to generate the sort of pace that they do from the back of the court, you can still generate a fair amount. Think back to the likes of, you know, Pete Sampras, what he was able to do with the Wilson Pro Staff or Jim Courier, but at least give guys who are good serving volleyers, like a Stefan Edberg, let him be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jim Courier. Because for me, that's a fair contest. 
on a, on a relatively quick court, you know, a nice, hard, neutral, hard court. Um, that's the kind of contest I want to see more of um, because I think the athleticism is, is obviously moved on. So, again, that's helping, I think, the baseline is a little bit more than what it is, the certain volley is. But, um, you know, I'd like to see Pat Rafter take on, you know, Rafael Nadal with an 85-square-inch um, racket on, on a nice quick US Open hardcore. It would be a great matchup for me. Got to say, Robbie, I'm actually I'm pretty happy that they haven't put a limit on uh, racket heads because uh, I uh, just in my local pub competition, I use a fairly big uh, Babylon Pure Drive, so uh, I'm pretty <laughs> happy there's no limit on that. But uh, just before we do let you go, this is a question that we love asking uh, our media and uh, and broadcasters that come on the show. What's uh, your favourite place that you've travelled to for tennis and what's the worst place that you've travelled to for tennis? Um... You mean like throughout my whole playing career, commentating career, everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, but um, either or, yeah. Okay. Um, my best place, you know, probably be a, a tie between Indian Wells and Monte Carlo. Um, just the scenery of the places is nice. just breathtaking, and I'm sure you guys see that at home when you're yeah. watching. Well, I don't know if you've been to Indian Wells or, or Monte Carlo, but two incredible venues and there's always such a buzz around them when we go there to commentate or even in, in my playing days. I love going to both. And, and the stuff that you can do around the tournament for me is also big. And there's plenty of golf uh, in uh, Monte Carlo. There's plenty of golf in, in Indian Wells. So those two definitely my uh, two of my favorites. I mean, Melbourne's right up there. There's plenty of good golf courses as well. So when I commentate late in the evening, try and sneak out to Kingston Heath or Royal Melbourne Get an early 18 in before going to do some work in the evening. It doesn't get much better for a double header voice. But the worst, um, I played uh, a challenger event in Fergana, Uzbekistan. And that was back in the in the, in the mid-90s. And it was uh, it was very basic yeah. back then. Eh? Oh, there wasn't a whole lot. The tournament was actually organized by the Israeli Tennis Federation. Oh. They were hosting the events there. And uh, they flew in all the food for the players. I mean, from your breakfast to your lunch and your dinner, everything was flowing in. Um, but I think for about seven days in a row, I ate cornflakes and and powdered milk. That was about as far oh, as I could go. Well, By the seventh day, I had a tummy bug, and I was out of there on uh, on an airplane. That wasn't great. I remember it didn't even have proper blinds that you could close. It was like a, a little was like a little curtain about oh, no. this big that you just opened and closed. And it was, you know, for, for 20 bucks when you got on the plane, you could maybe bribe the, the air hostess to, to let you uh, to sit in the business class section rather than the economy <laughs> class section. And all the guys knew it. We were all doing it. Um, but that was in the early days, man. Some crazy times. But often some of the best stories you remember with the guys who were on that trip. So, you know, the bad places always carry – very interesting stories. Yeah, you're you're right. We've had a couple of nominations from for Uzbekistan. Marinko Matosovic we had on a few a couple of months ago, and he said that it was absolutely horrible. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed that um that they can improve their tournament facilities. But um, <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. As always, you are by far the best tennis commentator going around in the world, and um, we hope to speak to you very very soon again. Yeah, always a pleasure, boys. Thanks for having me. Rob Koenig there, the absolute face or voice of tennis and, and should be face as well. What a what a what a wonderful man <laughs> he is and fingers crossed that um that we can hear his dulcet tones on live sport very, very soon. But Joel, I wanna go back to his Marion Bartoli comments um during that chat and you know, she did come out during the week and I was pretty annoyed at, at what she said about doubles and a lot of a lot of current doubles players were annoyed as well. So I want to, uh, just yeah. to talk about her comments and saying that you know money should be taken away from doubles and injected into singles. Um, not every week should have a doubles event. Event. Um, Rob's point was a hundred percent on the money that you know the art of serve volleying is still alive in doubles, and we saw Chris Guccione is a good um, advocate of that. He's still um, plying his trade in doubles. So are a lot, so are a lot of other players. So, um, and also the art of doubles is something that I think is it's one that it's it's one that doesn't get looked upon highly enough and um you know i'm i'm a victim of that like sorry I, i'm one that 
doesn't do that enough. I, I don't appreciate doubles for what it is and how good it is sometimes. And I, I am a very big singles fan and sometimes forget about doubles. But you know, when it's on, I do watch right, it. And right. yeah, it's um yeah, and it is a wonderful art. So I, I think Marion Bartoli's comments were um they weren't right. And you know, stating that players should put in less effort in doubles, that more events should be just singles with more cash inflow there. That's just taking away so much money from the people that make a career for themselves in doubles. The Bryan brothers, um, most of the top 10 in doubles haven't had that great a success in singles. Um, and it's very rare that you have success in or sustained success in both. Um, so if you look at the doubles rankings on the men's side now, Robert Farah won Sebastian Cavall. Uh, Nicholas Mahu and Horatio Zavaios have actually done quite well in singles. Um, Lucas Kubot has had an okay singles career, but... Marcelo um, Mello, um, Joe Salisbury, Philip Polasek, Rajiv Ram's done okay, so has Ivan Dodig, but Michael Venus, Raven Klassen, Kevin Kravitz, Andreas Mies, uh, Mice, I think it is, from Germany, uh, Mate Pavic, you know, that's the top 15 there. That Most of them have had a career in doubles, so or just that sustained career there. So um, I think Bartoli's comments are so far off the mark and um yeah it, it's it's nice to see that rob coming to the defense and um edward roger vaseline um came out during the week as well and said that you know it was a dumb comment and that you know she should probably just um just keep those opinions to herself because it's just it's not right yeah exactly yeah and look i think i think people forget as well i mean <laughs> Okay, yeah. In doubles, you've got you've got your two players, um, but I don't think people really appreciate um, how how much effort and how long it can take to actually, um, or how long it takes players to actually form a relationship with their partner and, and get to know their game. Um, you know, you could be the best singles player in the world. You could be Novak Djokovic and go into a, double, a doubles uh, pairing, but if you don't know your player, uh, your partner well enough, and you, you can't maximise your partner's um, ability, yeah. um, then, then you're not going to get very far. So look, doubles is pretty unique in that sense. It's not yeah. like singles at all. It's a completely different caper. So, um, you know, even just, just to compare them, um, the singles and doubles uh, is, is, is pretty unfair. So, yeah, look, it was disappointing. And, um, you know, I think we both agree, Val, that there's, there's, there's probably, um, you know, there's, there's probably too much money already at the top of, uh, at the top of singles. So yeah. to funnel even more money um, into singles, Singles and to deprive other areas of the sport, uh, not least doubles, is um, you know it's it's all you can really say is it's detrimental. I think she wanted it for the lower ebbs of singles, so qualifying and and those types of um, those types of events, so challenges and um, and the earlier rounds of tournaments. It wasn't for the top end of events, but yeah, I, I do get what you mean. Yeah. I think and and it showed a real lack of respect to some really quality doubles players and some of the most popular yeah. players on tour. Are doubles players and the Bryan brothers are the perfect example of that. And Todd Woodbridge and Mark Woodford, both of them have gone on to have significant media careers, and they're known more for their doubles exploits than they are singles. And it's it was a real it showed a real lack of respect from Marion Bartoli. And look, she is a wonderful tennis player. And she look, we're going to get to her a bit later on because she is in the running for our Benoit of the week because she also announced that she's pregnant as well. So she had a pretty topsy-turvy <laughs> week last week, but um, we'll get to that a little bit later. Should we get to Jonathan Pinfield and chat about this bromance with Alexander Zverev? Yeah, I reckon we should, Val. I cannot wait to hear, to hear the, uh, the Yorkshireman voice. Joel, our second guest uh, on today's show, has uh, he made headwaves with one of tennis' finest young prodigies at the French Open a couple of years ago who fell in love with his accent. That, of course, was Alexander Zverev, who, who loved a question from a journalist from Yorkshire back at Roland Garros in 2018. And I'm proud to announce that that man, Jonathan Pinfield, from uh, Live Sport FM in the UK, joins us on the line here and Jonathan thanks so much for joining us and um and chatting to us about all things tennis how are you going yeah very good pleasure to chat to you both you're both looking in good spirits which is good we're trying to it's um it's a bit of a crazy time at the moment with um COVID-19 so I guess first things first how are things um going up in in the UK and and where you are yeah I think as with the rest of the world uh, difficult times resolve uh, unfortunately, we've got one of the highest infectious and death rates uh, throughout the world. Uh, so, as with everyone, possibly quite a few different mixed messages. Everyone 
taking their own stance on it. But I think that what we all want is just for people to take safe, absorb as much information as you can uh, and make sensible decisions. So concerning times, a lot of unknowns that we don't understand, but learning together and uh, looking forward to uh, more sports and tennis in the future, hopefully. Yeah, I think we all are. It's been um, it's been very difficult not having any live sport. I think for for every for you know we're all sports followers, not just tennis. So having no sport has been pretty difficult. But um, uh, one thing that I want to ask you is sort of how or is there any sort of tennis matches that you've gone back and you've you've enjoyed watching um, over this pandemic and or one match that you always go back to and enjoy the highlights of. Well, uh, I've got to admit that my guilty pleasure at the moment, uh, I'm self-isolating, so I'm in a flat in Bradford City Centre, so I'm going straight back to the 1970s, uh, and I've been watching some of the Borg Mackinac classics yeah. from the late 70s on uh, 1980. Uh, I've treated myself to a, a DVD, uh, and also from a naughty perspective, I've uh, been going on a, a well-known uh, online uh, shopping auction site and uh, looking at various bits of tennis memorabilia that I never knew I needed or wanted. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't, I don't blame you at all. I've been doing the exact same thing. It's really bad. It's really bad, and it's just when you've got nothing else to do, you just find yourself online shopping, and it's an absolute, it's a sickness for me. I've, I've got a, I'm a bit of a shopaholic when it comes to that sort of stuff. So it's not. It's not good at all. Not good at all. No, of course. I was looking forward to going to Roland Garros uh, again this year and uh, momentarily persuaded myself that uh, it was uh, heavy on the heart but good for the bank balance that I wasn't going. But eBay seems to have occupied the space that Roland Garros has had over the last few years. So uh, my plans for saving up for the next big trip uh, haven't quite kicked in yet. But maybe one of you two can give me some advice as to what I need to do. So. Yeah, struggling at the moment, but uh, yeah, I've got some uh, weird and wonderful things uh, that I've bought online, so uh, yeah, moving swiftly on, I think. Can confirm, Jonathan, that uh, Val loves his uh, RF, anything with an RF on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah very guilty yeah. about well, that. I'll give you a little tip on that. Uh, if you ever get the opportunity to visit Wimbledon uh, and join the queue at Wimbledon, mm-hmm. don't actually go into Wimbledon, just wait until everyone's left the queue, and then you can have about 20 tents, uh, all with the wonderful RF Roger Fedor logos on there. Because the first 200 tents in the queue uh, are people from all different nationalities, all with the road RF uh, Roger Fedor logo. So, yeah, if you want a Roger Fedor branded tent, uh, possibly <laughs> that's been left behind, uh, get yourself in the queue. In fact, for next year, 2021, Mm. You might need to start queuing now. There's probably about 100 people in the queue for next year already. So, <laughs> yeah, as soon as you can, get over here and get in the queue, guys. Let's go, Joel. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I actually I actually did go to Wimbledon in uh, 2016 and did jump in the queue. I think it was day two, Jonathan, and uh, I actually can't, can't recall seeing a uh, RF branded tent, but uh, nevertheless, it was actually a pretty. Uh, it was a good experience queuing, um, even though we waited five hours. It was like, all right, yep, going to wait five hours. That was quite quick then. Well done. <laughs> Yeah, they say of course those bricks. If there isn't a queue, we'll find one. Uh, so, so, so the only good thing to come out of the COVID nineteen situation, because in the UK, uh, is that we've got a queue for everything, which is one of our national pastimes anyway. So, uh, in that <laughs> respect, uh, we're quite happy. Yep, uh, fair enough. Let's let's talk about uh, Alex Berev and uh, that moment at uh, Roland Garros a couple of years ago. Like, did it did it take you a bit by surprise uh, his response to that question? We love it when the players do sort of, I guess, not to say they never show personality, but when they when they sort of say say things like that and they entertain everybody. Were you were you uh, expecting that that kind of response? And then what followed on from that? It was a real surprise, actually, because what you're doing when you're there as a journalist, or, or what, I, what, what I do, I think proper journalists do a lot better job than I do, but what you tend to do is you tend to go to about six or seven news conferences a day. You go in, you ask a couple of questions, you hope that you're going to get some good responses. You come out, you sort your audio out, you file it back to the radio station, a couple of things might be syndicated, or a couple of colleagues might ask you something. You try and nip off to another match uh, 
and then you come back and then when you're watching a match, you get a call to go to another news conference. So in any given day, you could be going to six, seven, eight, nine, ten news conferences. And it's a bit like being on the gerbil's wheel. And remember at the end of the news conference, one or two colleagues are having a bit of a chuckle as we were walking out and slapping me on the back and saying that was good. But I was still in work mode, so, you know, top until the, uh, the interview, you, you do a bit of editing, you get it sorted, you post it to the station, you watch another tennis match, and then you get ready for the next one. So in that moment, I didn't think too much beyond it, other than we both had a bit of a chuckle, and a couple of colleagues liked it. Uh, it was about a 45-minute trip for me to get back from Roland Garros to my hotel, taking the metro in Paris. And again, on the way out, just one of two colleagues came up to me and said, oh, I love what you did earlier. And there was a bit of a chuckle. But I still didn't think too much of it. And then obviously got back to the hotel room. It had been posted on social media by the Roland Garros media team. <laughs> uh, um, you're in the same position as me, but probably a bit more successful than me. But, you know, nine times out of ten, you know, if you get one or two retweets uh, and you get one or two likes and it's not friend or family, you're suddenly in Yep. So, you know, when this one went beyond 10, I, I got giddy when I saw, you know, 10 retweets and likes. So it, it really took off. A lot of the UK-based sites uh, started running with it as well. It, it seemed to capture the public's imagination quite quickly. Um, I remember that night in my hotel room just strolling down some of the comments. Uh, and I actually screenshot one of the comments, uh, as you do out of Desperation, and I think it's a little not happen again. And it was something along the, along the line of, is it just me or are these two guys flirting? Something I thought was flirting. <laughs> at the time, I thought, well, that'll be just that of one random comment lost, you know, in, in, in a couple of others. Uh, and the initial story really was a real story about our conversation being lost in translation. And although, you know, we shared the universal language of tennis, you know, it's just didn't have a clue what, what I was saying. Uh, but quite quickly, um, as I got the opportunity to speak to him on a couple of other news conferences, the progressor of the time, we built up a bit of a rapport. Other journalists were coming up to me and saying, oh, what are you going to say next? What's the reaction going to be? I realised that in terms of the people who were there at the time, people who were following on social media, the story really changed from conversation that had been lost in translation to what you guys have affectionately known as a bromance really. So it, it was just quite interesting to see how that unfolded and how I think there was a bit of genuine warmth and affection, not just between myself and Sasha's very in the news conference, but all my colleagues in the media room who really thought that this was a positive thing to happen. And everyone following it around the world as well. And as you know, you alluded to a couple of minutes ago, the idea that we don't always see a lot of personality from players. Some of them are guarded. Some of them are very heavily media trained. That you don't often get those spontaneous moments. And yeah, I've been dining out on it ever since. So yeah, get this locked down over so I can have the next thing meal. Well, <laughs> well, the good thing is you went to um, you you followed the bromance and it kept going until last year's Roland Garros. But then it even. It even went international and went overseas to America as well. And you went to um, the US Open last year. And didn't he leave you a VIP ticket at Will Call as well? So it seems as though you two are on fairly good terms still. Yeah, I mean, that was just a happy series of coincidences, really. Uh, we know that uh, it was a difficult year for him on the court. His results weren't that good. You know, he'd had a lot of issues off the court they had to resolve as well. I'd obviously been following uh, his, his journey and got the opportunity to uh, speak to him at Roland Garros while he said that if he won this year, he was going to visit Yorkshire to celebrate. As we know, that didn't quite happen. I booked a week off work with no real intentions of doing much. Uh, thought I might go to the Edinburgh Film, uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival in the UK. Sasha had been on Twitter for a couple of weeks by that point, just before the US Open. Got in a bit of a row of her own, winning a couple of matches. I was cheering them on from home. Um, just as a joke, really, just put on Twitter, you know, 
this was about 10 o'clock at night, perhaps, after he'd just won his match. Just got to resist the temptation now to book a ticket and jump on the next plane, thinking nothing of it, just doing it for a bit of a laugh, to be honest. Maybe it might get a bit of a reaction on Twitter. But you know a couple of people who were out there and they'd message me saying, the tennis is great, the weather's great, it's a shame you're not here. So I was kicking myself a bit, thinking I, I should have really sorted something out, but didn't. Getting ready for bed about midnight, putting on my pyjamas, I won't reveal too many details about my preparations as I get ready for bed. Just thought before I go to bed, I'll look on Twitter. And I just saw a tweet from him, you know, with a couple of emojis along the lines of, you know, plane tickets, scratch your head, fingers crossed. And I thought, oh, this looks a bit sad. This is from Sasha's Vera on his Twitter account. Brilliant. He'd retweet it as well. People would tweet saying, yeah, go for it, jump on it. I thought, well, I can't do it. It's going to be too much. But, you know, it was nice looking. Just thought, I'll just have a sneaky look at how much the tickets are to fly out there. And it was 400 pounds. Oh, Been to New York before. There's lots of Airbnbs. Uh, I'll book it. So I booked it. I'll take it up at five o'clock that morning to get the flight first thing. It's about an hour and a half uh, on the train from where I am to Manchester Airport. Couldn't sleep. It was only going to be four to five days. Oh, no. Chucked a few things over there. Got on a plane. Booked an Airbnb when I landed, which was very good. Scrambling around for tickets a bit, to be honest, but managed to book one or two. Had a big call on Twitter, and he messaged me back saying, don't we, I'll sort you out. So there we go. <laughs> There's another funny little story important. about VIP will call as well, you mentioned that. I was in a queue at will call for about two hours. Oh, no. And they were like, no, 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 your name's not on the list. Who do you say has left you the ticket, so, you know. World number six, Sasha's very clever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, we get these random chances all the time. And they got a message from one of the US uh, Open officials on Twitter saying, oh, you might not know this, but there's two will calls. There's will call and there's VIP will call. It's like, of course it's going to be VIP will call. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, got through to the quarterfinals. He, he had a pretty good run. Uh, I was all set for jumping back if you have got to the final. But, uh, yeah, Rocky Mountain last year started well at the Australian Open, as you guys all know better than I this year. So, a bit of a shame, really. The, mm. the season came to a bit of a crashing end because, uh, yeah. yeah, he showed a bit of form there. Yeah, he did. Of course, made the semi final, went down to Dominic team in the end. Just before we let you go, Jonathan, it would be remiss of us to have a Yorkshireman on the show and uh, and not ask uh, about football. And you can probably see behind me on our Zoom chat here, I've got a few football scarves uh, just to my right. I don't support any of these teams, by the way, except myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, of course, there are a few uh, fairly big clubs in uh, Yorkshire, Leeds United, Hull City and also Huddersfield Town. Uh, who do you follow? Well, uh, I'm a child of the 70s. I, uh, I mentioned I was buying all the Borg McEnroe uh, DVDs and watching their classic matches. So the biggest... Football star at the time in England, that was Kevin Keegan, uh, okay. when I was growing up. My allegiance that was, and still is with Liverpool. So oh, yes. Uh, yeah, we've waited <laughs> 30 years uh, for Liverpool to regain the title, and hopefully, we just, uh, yeah, two games away from lifting the Premiership again. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people who grew up in my era were big Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalgleish fans. And, I'm Liverpool fans, so uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Very good man, very good man. Fingers crossed. I'm also a Liverpool man, so that would be great if they can uh, if they can lift the trophy. But Jonathan Pinfield, thank you so much for sharing your story and what a what a wonderful bromance it became over Roland Garros a couple of years ago. And um and yeah, you're a wonderful journalist. And fingers crossed, we can see much more from uh, from you and um and your relationship with Sasha over the next couple of years. And it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Thanks for joining us. Well, look forward to meeting with you at the Australian Open. You never know. Cannot wait for it. Cannot wait. Jonathan Pinfield there joining us from Yorkshire. How good was that, Joel? 
Yeah, great. I uh, I feel soothed. I feel soothed yeah. by his accent. Yeah, I the love story it. with uh, Alex Verab is just so good. I love it. Yeah, it's good to see players in the media having that kind of bromance because you don't really see it anymore. The players tend to not trust the media as much, and rightly so, for some of the things that get said out of context. And um, you know, we shouldn't. You know, we want to advocate for the truth, and um, sometimes uh, people do stretch that a little bit too far. So no, it's good to see it's something a little bit different, but um, a chat that we really, really enjoyed. And um, let's fly through our final couple of segments for the show. Now we've done a couple of nostalgic things since we have uh, re-embarked on our breakpoint journey, Joel. And um, this week, we're going to do our top three Grand Slam underdog stories um, in wake of our post during the week of uh, Francesca Schiavone winning the 2010 French Open. That was a, a bit of an underdog yeah. story. Um, but we thought we'd go through our top three men and top three women. I'll do the men. You can do the women. My, uh, my top three underdog stories for the men were... Number three, Goran Ivanisevic, 2001 Wimbledon, had fallen at the Wimbledon final hurdle, I think, three times before, two times before, um, and there was one against Pete Sampras where he was so mighty close to winning it and couldn't get the job done. Uh, beat Pat Rafter, 9-7 in the fifth in an epic final, um, and yeah, finally got that Grand Slam, but he was a wild card going into that tournament, ranked outside the top. 200. So it was a complete and utter shock that he actually managed to get where he did and, and win that title. And um, yeah, a wonderful tournament from him. David Nalbandian, 2002 Wimbledon. So the next year, Nalbandian had never played an ATP or ITF match on grass ever. So challenger, ITF future, anything like that, hadn't played on grass. And he makes the Wimbledon final in his first attempt. Unbelievable record, that man. What, what a player he was. And number one, how could you forget? Marcos Bagdadis, the 2006 Australian Open finalist. Um, nobody expected that. Absolutely nobody. The players he took down, Andy Roddick was in almost career-best form. Uh, he took him down in the fourth round. Ivan Lubacic in the quarterfinals in an epic five-setter came from two sets to love down against Nalbandian in the semis and then took the first set off Federer in the final before running out of steam. So a wonderful tournament from him and also Wimbledon semi-finalist that year as well. We'll go with your women, Joel. Yeah, so at number three, and I almost thought about going with uh, with this one for number one, but uh, at the, the, 27, the 2017 French Open champion, Yelena Ostapenko, I'm um, just going to reel off some of the, uh, some of the stats about... Uh, this win. She became the first Latvian player, male or female, to win a Grand Slam singles tournament, the youngest woman to win the French Open since 1997, and she was the first unseated woman to win the French Open since 1933. So, um, some uh, nice. <laughs> just Yelena Rostopenko absolutely etched in the history books there Huge. Uh, from, that, uh, from that triumph. Uh, a little earlier that year, at number two, we had Miana uh, Lucic Broni, of course, made the semi finals at the Australian Open at the ripe old age of, uh, I think it was 35. Yeah. Um, of course, Miana, had a, she was pretty good younger um, or earlier in her career um, as, a, as a younger player. She was pretty good, uh, uh, pretty good junior for, for memory. And, of course, uh, in the end was toppled by uh, Serena Williams. And, uh, of course, Serena went on to set up that uh, uh, dream final, of course, against, uh, against Venus that year. Um, and at number one, just last year, of course, uh, the 2019 US Open, uh, Bianca Andreescu won the final there, defeating Serena at uh, the tender age of 18. Nobody expected that. Certainly uh, not myself. She just came out of nowhere. Um, seated 15th she was and uh, just uh, keeps keeps ticking boxes, does Bianca? Yep, she'd won some premier events, but yeah, nobody expected that Grand Slam triumph and how good it was. She was unbelievable. And, um, you know, when you could go up a set against Serena, you can get a bit complacent and Serena was up a break in that second and Andreescu just managed to storm home and win it. The Benoit of the week, Joel. The um, a segment we invented for our favourite Frenchman, who can be downright stupid or just <laughs> supremely brilliant in one from one minute to the next. We saw it at the Australian Open this year against Marin Cilic, where in the first game he was spitting on the court, smashing his racket, taunting the crowd, but then he ended up pushing it to five, and um, it was an unbelievable match. But... Um, we had a very, our first close Benoit of the week this week, and um, who, yeah, we did. Who, who edged it out for you? Yeah, so uh, we teased that it could be uh, Marion Bartoli for a comments uh, about doubles, but uh, before that, we actually had uh, we actually had Benoit pretty much locked in, and uh, Benoit number eight is Roger Federer, and the reason for that is because Roger. 
Parker also had a bit of an up and down uh, week. Um, not not his finest moment when he sent uh, he sent some well wishes to uh, Alan Jones, Australian broadcaster who retired after some thirty years um, on air with one of the big radio stations uh, down here. So for any international listeners that aren't aware. Um, yeah, Alan Jones, he's an influential voice, but uh, he also happens to be uh, a racist, a xenophobe, and uh, also a misogynist. So I'm not really sure why Roger uh, felt necessary to get himself uh, involved um, uh, with uh, with that uh, episode. But um, the flip side of the coin is that later in the week, um, Roger became um, the highest paid male athlete. So uh, a, a fair old week for him. Yeah. Um, and um, we should give uh, give some credit to Naomi Osaka as well because uh, she was named the uh, highest paid female, overtaking Serena Williams. So uh, congratulations to Naomi. But yeah, Ben White number eight is Roger Federer. Tennis doing very well on the pay packet front. But yeah, I think um, with that Alan Jones thing, I think Usain Bolt did it as well and sent him a message. I think that uh, you can pay you can have Ben White as well. Yeah, you can pay this service to or to get a celebrity to send a message to you. Um, so yeah, I think that's the only reasonable explanation I can come up with as to why both of them did that. So, but yeah, no, that's, um, that's the typical, that's, that's what we wanted a Benoit of the week, a really good week, but also you know not the best week as well. But, um, Joel, thank you very, very much for your efforts today. It's been an awesome show. We can't wait to, um, to see what's in store for the next week and fingers crossed that we can get another big guest and, um, and go from there. But thank you very much as always. No, no worries, Val. I'm off to cook some steak now, so I'll go enjoy that. Oh, yum. I'm, I'm getting excited. Can you can you bring me some? Yeah, sure. Beautiful. It'll be oh. tough. Uh, it'll be tough, but... Uh... It'll be as tough as a two-minute <laughs> steak. Uh, <laughs> I see what you did there. I thought you were actually going to cook some steak. Um, so... <laughs> I, that just fell flat on my head then. Um, but yeah, thank you very much, Joel. And uh, this has been Breakpoint Podcast. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, insert Breakpoint Podcast, or search Breakpoint One or Breakpoint on Facebook. Um, follow us, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or um, iTunes, sorry, or um, Spotify, or even uh, on Wishka as well. I've been Val Febo, Joel Frucci on the other line. This has been Breakpoint. We'll catch you next week.